Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. make an observation here for every authentic Christian, the moment, the day comes when doing nothing is no longer an option. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat my declaration. Um, for every authentic Christian, the moment, the day comes when doing nothing is no longer an option. So maybe today is that day for you. Maybe you're going to have one of those clarifying moments today where you recognize that the same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you and that that spirit is propelling you to move forward in a particular direction to address a particular injustice or wrong. You know, the moment arrives. Um, when the Spirit moves us tangibly and purposefully in a particular direction where, you know, we just recognize that possessed of the radical reaching love of Jesus for people who are broken by sin, um, we, we quite literally cannot help ourselves but to go and help those who cannot help themselves. So those of us um, who are redeemed— we know the depths of a love that reaches into dark despair because it is a love that reached to us. Um, those of us who are redeemed, we know the, the power of a love to rescue. Um, and we then extend that to others by grace. We extend to others the grace that we have also received. So I want you to consider today how and when the gospel was extended to you. And I want you to consider um, who God used to extend his grace. Who told you the gospel story? And then in turn, who have you told? Not, not, not only in word, but also in deed. In my own experience, it comes in a moment. It comes upon us in a moment. Uh, yes, a moment of decision, but also... A moment where the compassion of Christ rises up within us in such a way that we simply arrive at the point where doing nothing is no longer an option. And it leads us to an action um, where we, I don't know, set our feet straight down, uh, resisting the cultural current of self-interest or other avoidance, and instead we take a stand. And we walk into the pain of another person, sometimes just to share it so that they don't have to endure it alone, sometimes because we're actually in a position to make the next moment different by our positive action. 
So for many, many Christians in America, uh, doing nothing is no longer an option in terms of racism, in terms of human trafficking, in terms of abortion, in terms of uh, the way that the elderly have been uh, neglected and sometimes the sick have been left to die. We have just arrived at a place where many Christians are collectively putting down their feet in the cultural current and saying, no more, no more. The time has arrived when doing nothing is no longer an option. For me, I'll just observe that the culture of death has reached uh, a fever pitch, and I am observing that for more and more Christians, thanks be to God, doing nothing is no longer an option. Our friend Daryl Crouch arrived uh, at, at his own personal moment related to that and continues to lead others to activate their faith. Um, and he's back today. So coming up, my conversation with Daryl Crouch. We'll be right back. Daryl Crouch is the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also blogs at Crosstide. Dot, I don't have it up. Crosstide. Dot what, Daryl? Dot org. Sure. Dot org. That's all good. Crosstide. Sure. Dot org. Hey, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you. So, um, I, I feel like uh, um, I have to ask, having uh, having done my intro the way I did, can you recall a particular point in time when? You know, just the the energy of the spirit within you made you put your feet down in in sort of the cultural current of the day. And as a Christian, you stood up and um, maybe not verbally, but declared by your actions that uh, that inaction was no longer an option. Well, yeah, that's a that is a, a pretty uh, significant setup there you you gave. But I, I think there there's been a couple of moments, honestly, and I could share this at length uh, in another setting, but. There was a there was a couple of moments. The most recent was maybe four or five years ago. Again, where uh, I was sitting in a room with our director of schools, and she began to tell us that twenty five percent of our kids in our public schools were in the free and reduced lunch program and qualified for that. Now we're the second wealthiest county in our state, and so to think about a quarter of our kids, uh, certainly all of those aren't. In, it's not a monolithic group. There's there's variances there, but to think that approximately 25% of our kids might go to bed hungry tonight in the second wealthiest county in our state, um, just you know, you go home and you think that there's no reason anyone should go hungry in our community um, ever. I mean, there's just no good reason for that. And obviously, there's there's issues with family structures and so on, but. Um, but I think that was a moment that I said, you know, the church has a responsibility to step into this. And uh, other other issues with re- re- reference to racial reconciliation efforts with some friends here in this community. And and I think all of that converged at that moment to say, we, we've, we're a great community. I mean, we're a wonderful group of people, but we have real, real pockets of vulnerability. And if the church is going to do anything here, we have to step into those pockets of vulnerability with uh, with the hope of the gospel, not putting that aside, but motivated and moved by the hope of the gospel, and build relationships and serve people in a way that will meet them. They're not, 
and I, I know I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I come from that perspective, but they're not coming to my church and listening to the hope of the gospel because we have a cool sign or a neat program out, you know, uh, on 4th of July or on, for a car show or a vacation Bible school, even for that matter. Uh, the, all the programmings we uh, think are fun and, and helpful and, and are a good service to our community. Most people, 80% of the people in my community are not ever going to come onto my property uh, or any other church property in our community. And so that was a moment that I sat there and listened to our director of schools uh, talk about the the real needs in, uh, as she's trying to educate kids. And I thought, you know, this is a moment for us. So, yeah. So one of the things that I appreciate about about you and your witness, um, that conversation didn't take place because the director of schools came to uh, the church seeking help. Uh, right. It happened because you, as a representative of Christ, um, went to that individual went seeking um, how can we uh, how can we come come alongside educators and um, and schools in our community I mean how could this be a way that we extend the gospel to more and more people um, in tangible ways in a particular community I think that the um, the outward turning of of Christians um, versus the inward turning sort of protectionist approach where we might uh, you know, consider the church a safe place, a sanctuary from where we might, you know, go to, you know, ostensibly turn our back on the world. Um, and instead, this is the church turning outward toward the world in the spirit of Christ. I mean, he this is what the incarnation is. It is it is putting on flesh and walking it out into a hurting world um, to extend the grace of God to more and more people. And in order to do that, we have to not only be aware of um of of all of the horrendous realities produced by sin and how far we now live from Eden um but we have to be willing to walk into those places and spaces of pain to engage with vulnerable people um and to extend a hand of of helping grace absolutely and our paradigm has to shift in order for that to happen and again i'm talking to I'm thinking about people who are committed to the local church, who love Jesus, and who want to see their church thrive. And I'm not suggesting our churches can't thrive when we do this, but our paradigm has to shift to say that the metrics are not how many people are coming to my church on a Sunday necessarily, but how many people are impacted by my gospel witness this week or this year. Are there fewer lost people in my community? Uh, can we move the needle in these pockets of vulnerability? Well, for that to happen, you may not have the same metrics. And so then my sense of self-worth or my sense of progress or effectiveness, how I how church is going, for example, for the average churchgoer is a question that they may have asked at, at a time. And so uh, the question is not how my church is doing, but how, how's my city doing? That's the real question. And uh, I wasn't the first one to ask that question. I've, I'm sure I've uh, ga gained that from somebody else, but uh, that's, it's a good question. How is my community doing? And so for the church to start to ask that question, we, we have to actually step into those conversations, whether it's with my friend who's now the, or, or the city manager who's now my friend that I went to and said, listen, I don't have a lot of money, but our church would love to bless our city. What, what are some needs? And so um, after some conversation we said we can help the police department in this particular area, or we just we were just able after our tornadoes came through in March to uh, to give our fire department 
two really cool <laughs> gators, you know, that help them do their John Deere gators that help them do their their work. And um, how can we bless you? How can we make you um, and uh, successful in serving our city? Because you're serving our city every day and keeping us safe and healthy and so on. So I think and that never gets on any report that never gets. You know, those things, we just have to say, listen, I'm, I, the metrics, the scorecard is going to have to change here in order for me to really step into this in a way that's open-handed. I'm talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch. When we come back, we're going to talk about the intersection of church and patriotism. We've just mm-hmm. we've just passed July 4th, and so we're just going to have a conversation about, um, you know, how pastors view I don't know, e- even something as— well, seemingly popular as the American flag in a sanctuary. Well, we're going to talk about that. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch, uh, we just talk about all kinds of things, and um, sometimes we talk about things that are Uh, Hard to talk about and are not often raised in conversations in our communities, but they are things that Christians often think about. And so we're trying to uh, engage with one another in conversations that we hope you will be provoked to engage in as well. Um, Let's talk about flags. Let's talk about the American flag. Let's talk about patriotism and the church. I don't know. Let's just uh, I'll just set all of that up on a tee and let you take a swing. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, it's a conversation that doesn't just now come up on 4th of July. Uh, We are calling folks uh, regularly to engage in the public space. And so how we relate to government and how we how we think about our nation and love of country is a is really an ongoing conversation now more than ever. And so I think that's good. And um, all of us should encourage love of country. This is where God has put us. This is I love my city. I love my nation. Um, I love my family. We can even bring it down to that level. Uh, Although I, you know, there's some things in my family, um, me excluded, that are, you know, there's some crazy people in my family. And so um, I think if everybody was as normally, you know, normal and well-adjusted as me, we'd be, we'd be good, but uh, sarcasm there. But the uh, in every family, there's difficulty, but we love our family. In every nation, there's difficulty, but we love our nation. And so Jesus's admonition to love our neighbor, I think, really translates well in terms of how we, uh, how patriotic we are. And so patriotism really isn't the enemy. I think what happens is that we we sometimes can go into to nationalism and a sense that um, we're the only ones that matter. And so I, I think as we uh, wave the flag in church, and and we do other things in church from time to time. We have Mother's Day or Father's Day, or we celebrate some other things that aren't necessarily central to the gospel. And so, I, I don't. I'm not coming down too hard. I'm not going to come down too hard on churches that that uh, celebrate and are patriotic on the Fourth of July weekend or Memorial Day weekend or whenever. Uh, I just think. Um, first of all, I think our attitude toward one another and how we walk that through should be incredibly gracious. Uh, local church pastors know their church better than I do and uh, better than anybody else, and they, they have a sense of what's important. And so I, I think we should show a lot of grace to folks who, who are a little more patriotic on a Sunday morning and those who are less patriotic on a Sunday morning. I think we want to be really careful about pointing too many fingers or wagging our fingers too hard at folks who may not do it the way we do it. But I do think 
no matter how we do it or don't do it, that keeping the gospel in the center of the picture is really important and uh, that we can love our country without thinking that we're the only ones that matter. And uh, that's where things get a little sideways, I think. Um, And Jonah was a great example of this. I think he was very committed to his country, and he equated loyalty to country to loyalty to God. And uh, that's that's the God and country piece that really does create some, uh, I think, some some harmful things in the as we catechize our kids in church and catechize our even the adults as we walk through and disciple folks. And so I just think uh, having a, a real clear sense of what we're doing on a Sunday morning in worship is is really important. And uh, we're all over the map. It's really hard to find consensus on anything these days, but I think we can rally around the gospel and uh, learn to love our neighbor without thinking that um, the USA is the only country that matters to God, or that love of country equates to faithfulness to the gospel. Um, So getting those things in order uh, are really important for our people. I know that in recent days we have been talking here about the efforts of um, the communist government in China to not only communize Hong Kong, but to require churches throughout China um, to not only display the flag, but to actually include expressly um, patriotic sermons um, and patriotic teaching in as a condition of reopening in the midst of COVID. Um, and so I do think that there are opportunities for us. We do have a global perspective. We do know what's happening around the world. We do know how patriotism is uh, has been certainly in the days of Nazism and um, and we're seeing we're seeing the exultation even in America of, you know, of a flag of Southern expression um, that that's not the waving of it in the face of others is not helpful and it's not glorifying to God. And so I do think that there are opportunities for us to talk about the banner over us being Christ and that as Christians, um, you know, the, the bowing, ultimately bowing to any other flag, any other banner other than Christ is is not our highest allegiance. And so we're not talking about failing to be good citizens of, of a given nation, but we're also recognizing we are first and foremost citizens of a kingdom and uh, and we worship a king. And so I do think that yeah. when you talk about the gospel being, um, you know, the, the thing that we want to continue to be pointing to, that is our rallying cry. That is our, uh, you know, that uh, the cross is uh, is the place to which we run, um, and that is our hill, literally to die on. Um, we're not going to die on yeah. another hill. Oh no, absolutely. And I think that's that's got to be the fabric, or that's got to be the motivation uh, in our everyday life as we engage in the public square. I think one of the difficulty, or one of the frustrating things, or concerning things I've seen among you know just really honest Jesus loving people uh, is that there's this. Um, gray area or this uh, uh, confusion that uh, listen if I'm if I'm of a particular political disposition then that must I must be on God's side and um, to be on God's side you have to be of this particular you know patriotic or or public policy issue you've got to be in this com- compartment over here and we've lost sight of the gospel in that and that bleeds over into how we celebrate or how we what we do in terms of wrapping the the cross and the flag and all all of those perversions of of worship. And so I, I think at the at the personal level, 
we have to make a decision as that, that Jesus is our king and that we are just passing through here. And we are citizens, as you said, of a, of a heavenly kingdom. And that fuels the way we relate to our own government, the way that we respond to issues of religious freedom, for example, and religious liberties. And uh, the way that we, um, I don't know, if lines are needed to be drawn in the sand, it is the gospel that does that, not our political disposition. All right, so much that you and I could talk about, but we're out of time for today. Daryl Crouch, thank you so much. You guys can read what Daryl is uh, is blogging at crosstide.org, uh, and we look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you so much. Uh, you're great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right, you've heard of cancel culture. Uh, cancel culture would be that effort to um, eliminate from public hearing opinions that are uh, not popular among uh, a particular segment of people. And so it's, a, it's an effort to shout down every opinion but the one that you possess. It is, it is the precise opposite um, of, of a pluralistic culture where uh, there's a free exchange of ideas and the best ideas win. Uh, it, it, it's 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 the it is the exact opposite of that, and it's obviously um, freedom of speech that's being used to suppress the freedom of others to speak, which it just makes it about as anti-American as it could possibly be. Well, uh, cancel culture is now uh, so aflame that um, liberals themselves are now stepping forward to say uh, this has gone too far. And so some 150 uh, individuals that I expect that list to grow um, have joined together and signed on uh, this letter, which begins our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Uh, and they go on to not only criticize, but really condemn cancel, ca- cancel culture. As you might imagine, there is now a cancel culture movement to cancel them. We're going to talk a little bit about um, all of that with Hunter Baker up next. All right, so we had to cancel the in-person version of the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference, but we didn't cancel the event. No, no, it's now available online. So fully online with a mix of live and pre-recorded elements. You can still jump in and join us. Uh, you go to NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. You'll have access to all 19, uh, actually I think it's 22, breakout sessions to view at your own pace. One of those is mine. Uh, There are keynote addresses by Karen Kingsbury and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Alicia Britt Scholey. You also get to sign up uh, for virtual one-on-one appointments with an editor, an agent, or an author. All kinds of really fun stuff happening. And so go ahead, uh, join us at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference, now fully online at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. I have a lot of parents ask me for practical advice, steps they can take right now to relieve the tension at home. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're living with a struggling teen, you may feel the same urgency. Maybe you're looking for a quick fix. Well, there isn't a magic potion that'll bring instant peace to your home. Tough problems take time to resolve. But let me suggest a couple of steps that'll help you right away. First, 
When your teen acts up, stop lecturing and start listening. Second, stop worrying and start praying. Include God in the process. And finally, stop frowning and start laughing. It's not a cure, but it'll give you a new perspective on your life with a struggling teen. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. You can follow him on all the socials at Hunter Baker. Welcome back, sir. Hello. Good to be with you. That's good. You haven't been canceled, so that's good. <laughs> I, I'm lucky, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about cancel culture. Um, specifically, just in the last, uh, I mean, in the last few days, we have seen cancel culture um, take a turn toward some surprising um, targets, Frederick Douglass being one one of them, Hamilton, uh, the musical, now the movie, uh, being another. Um, and and I predicted a few days ago that cancel culture would take a turn toward Thomas Jefferson, and that has happened as well. Um, talk with us a little bit about the development um, of this particular storyline in the culture today. I mean, it's uh, the word that we that, that I associate with cancel culture is woke, right? I mean, you know, we talk about people being woke. The idea is is that they have uh, wakened from a dream. They have uh, uh, wakened from a false dream that is uh, the country that that we call the United States of America, and they. Uh, are alert to all of the injustices uh, and wrongs that the country has committed. And whereas before they may have been proud of their country, now they are not. Uh, and they believe with good reason. And that results in a cancel culture where you kind of try to uh, erase um, anyone who runs afoul of this, this new sense of uh, alertness about justice. That's what's going on, and uh, it reminds me, and and a lot of people, of what happened in China uh, in the late '60s. Uh, you had the Cultural Revolution in China, um, orchestrated by Chairman Mao, who I think is arguably the worst leader in the history of humankind, uh, and he urged young people to. Uh, staged this kind of revolution, and and a lot of it had to do with uh, with erasing the past uh, and substituting a sense of revolutionary justice. And we're seeing that uh, that sort of a movement grow in the U.S. right now. It's expressly um, anti-biblical or or not biblical to try to erase um, the memory of of things that have happened like we we are the people who inherit um a storyline that goes all the way back to the beginning and is established on um a rhythm of remembrance not in order that the past might be repeated in fact quite to the contrary um in order that uh the reality of sin and brokenness and uh an enmity toward god m- m- we might be acutely aware of it um, in order that we might not only uh, 
express our own need for a savior, but seek to have that savior's influence um, impact everyone and everything. Um, so for gospel people, the idea of erasing the past um, uh, has, you know, it has this, I don't know, it's probably kind of complicated, Hunter, because like, right, I mean, yes, Jesus Jesus solves my sin problem, but it doesn't mean that uh, that I forget the ways in which I have wronged God. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think also that there is a a real lack of grace and charity um, and awareness of one's own sin. Uh, it you know, cancel culture is uh, incredibly judgmental, uh, and the price that it seeks to to have people pay uh, is extraordinary. Uh, one of the things that I dislike so much is that is that it's not <clears throat> it's not where you confront somebody by saying that you disagree with them, uh, but rather uh, I'm going to talk to your employer uh, about how I disagree with you, or I'm going to seek to make you totally unemployable, or to make it impossible for you to have a business or or something like that. It's uh, it's incredibly vindictive in its approach and. Uh, very often you see the people who are targets of it. They they give these, to me, incredibly uncomfortable uh, floor-crawling apologies uh, that are never enough, uh, and the person is just left sort of destroyed in a civic fashion. And interestingly enough, um, if you read uh, Tocqueville's um, account of his trip to America – uh, he writes about that. He writes about how uh, Americans do have this problem of uh, if there if there are enough of them in a group, they assume they're righteous. Uh, I don't know if it's an American problem or a human problem, but <laughs> but the but the sense of of righteousness and what it enables people to do in cancel culture to me is kind of a terrifying thing. For those of you not familiar with Alexis de Tocqueville, um, Democracy in America is absolutely worth a read. It's really easy to find. If you just Google Democracy in America, um, you can find the text that Hunter is, uh, Hunter is pointing to there. Um, that, is a, that is a really – that's an important read right now for so many reasons. Um, we actually read that over the 4th of July uh, weekend with, with our 14- and 16-year-old um, as our – as the substance of uh, of the conversation that we wanted to have uh, wow. about America today. So, yeah, well, we didn't read the whole thing. We actually read the um, the digest of it, the sort of abbreviated version of it. Um, uh, oh, I can't even remember who's uh, who who produced that. But there you go. Could, um, could have been John Trinity Wilsey. Forum. I think it, I think it oh, was okay. Trinity Forum. I think okay. they I think they did a little booklet version of it that uh, and that's the one that we used. So, um, yeah, Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, absolutely uh, a really good read, um, not only for, for right now, but for, you know, w- w- who we aspire to be um, as a yes. moral people. It, it does ask the, the primary question, like, can this experiment of self-governance actually work? I mean, that, that is the question that's that he, right. That he asks. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's part of the, the great American legacy is that, is that a lot of people uh, – Looked at the looked at the U.S. and they thought that this experiment uh, in free democratic government could not succeed. And and look, it almost didn't. I mean, we <clears throat> we had a civil war 
less than a century, much less, much less than a century from the beginning of the Republic. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the, the union just sort of barely survived, uh, what happened. And of course that's all part of this, right? I mean, yes, America does have this, uh, this complicated history. Uh, and frankly, that's true of essentially every nation. Uh, you know, the, the conquest and subjugation in the history of the world, uh, is everywhere, uh, unfortunately, most of the nations were not founded just on sort of a pure social contract sort of a basis where everybody got together and have a, had a consensus, uh, but rather there's a, there's a lot of war and violence and conflict, and that's true of our nation too. Uh, but I don't think that that merits uh, sort of a, a willingness to turn everybody in American history into villains – uh, or to act as though if we had lived at that time, that we would have been the enlightened voice. Because the odds are that, that we wouldn't have been. The odds are that when you live in that environment that you would have the attitude people of that time had. Uh, and so we need to be more fair about the way we view history. All right, uh, Dr. Hunter Baker and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We are going to turn our attention to a decision Uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in relation to faithless electors. And those of you who operate out of Reformed theology, don't worry, don't worry. Faithless electors is not you. That's my attempted humor. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker. Um, Let's talk about the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court the opinion issued. um, I'm just going to set it up and tell us what, tell us what, remind us what an elector is. What does it mean to be a faithless elector? And what did the Supreme Court have to say? Uh, Well, simply that uh, in each, the the electoral college uh, is designed to represent the interests of the states in the presidential election process. And, um, and each state selects electors to cast the state's electoral votes. Um, And what occasionally happens, uh, not often, uh, very rarely actually in history, uh, is that one of these electors um, selected, selected through some process in their state will cast the vote differently than the state's vote was right so so we imagine that uh you know say washington state voted for hillary clinton and one of the electors instead of voting for uh for secretary clinton voted for uh an indian chief or or something like that well that that person is a faithless elector and so the constitutional question was was does the elector just have the right uh, to vote the way they want to, or is it constitutional for the state to punish a an elector uh, who votes in that fashion? And the answer the Supreme Court gave was that yes, the states can punish a person uh, who doesn't cast that electoral vote faithfully. You know, Hunter, I think that when we bring this down to you know sort of the the level that many of us might understand, 
Um, I do think that there are times that we imagine that we have elected a person in a in a particular uh, office or position and we expect them to vote as we would vote. Um, And in some cases, they actually have the freedom of their own conscience to, Uh you know, enter into a deliberative environment and be convinced by the argument of the day and vote uh, their conscience in the moment. Um, That that is not what the Supreme Court says here. They say, no, you look, you. Your conscience is actually your vote is bound by what the people of your state um, actually went to the polls and voted. And so this is like real like genuine representation. This individual must represent the will of the people um, based on the vote. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's going on here. Now, there's there's a little bit of tension um, with. Uh, some of the ideas in the founding. I, th- I think actually Alexander Hamilton, of all people, um, I think may have had the view that it's better for the electors to kind of work via their independent sense of judgment. You know, uh, Hamilton had a little bit of an aristocratic uh, sense about him in that way. Uh, but the Supreme Court had no doubts. I think this was a nine zero decision that the mm-hmm. elector needs to needs to follow uh, the votes of their state. All right. And then um, quickly, let's talk about the, the because actually this one might be of greater interest to most people. Um, what did the Supreme Court decide in terms of robocalls? Well, OK, so first of all, they're already illegal. Uh, despite the fact that we all continue to get them. Um, I, I don't know about you. I despise robocalls. I, I, I can remember a time when I used to answer my cell phone uh, when it wasn't somebody I already know. <laughs> and now I no longer do that. I just I see a number that I don't know and I don't bother to answer it. Uh, and, you know, and now a lot of us, what we do is if we're going to try to call somebody, we might text their number first and say, hey, I'm going to call you so that they will then pick up the phone. Right. Uh, what the Supreme Court said was that there there can't be a distinction. There was a carve out that uh, collectors of federal debt could make robocalls. And uh, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. That's uh, that's an unacceptable um, regulation of, of speech. If you're going to tell, say, political campaigns that they can't make robocalls, that's going to have to apply across the board. That's what this case was. All right. Um, we've got one minute left. What else are you thinking about or working on uh, in these days? Uh, you know, the big thing for me is I just want people to uh, think more carefully about about the legacy of the United States. I mean, look, I agree with I agree with the idea that sometimes we're too casual or or easy in our pride about our country. But at the same time, I just want people to remember that we have just lived through the 20th century and the United States, more than any other nation, really preserved freedom for people of the world against totalitarianism in the forms of fascism and communism in the 20th century. That needs to be on the ledger. Um, hey, my next guest is a, a Medal of Honor recipient. Um, he served with valor uh, in the Vietnam War. And so can you just um, remind us uh, what the Vietnam War was all about? Yeah, we were trying to contain the spread of communism. 
Uh, communism was never a one nation sort of an idea. It was it was the idea that it was going to be a, a total world system. And we were trying to retard that growth. Uh, when China went communist after World War II, it shocked everybody. And so the desire was to try to find a way to contain it. That was American policy. All right. Well, let me just say you would love um, you would love this guy, uh, Gary Bykirk. And the book is Blaze of Light. It is the true story um, of this Green Beret medic, uh, Medal of Honor recipient. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you, you would love this. Uh, you would love this book. So um, maybe I'll find a way to mail my copy to you. Um, all right. Hunter Baker, thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, it's always a rich, illuminating experience. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back. Uh, breathe deeply. Hey, let's um, let's just recognize that the gospel is real and it is true and God is powerful. Um, and maybe the next great awakening is not going to be quite what we had been praying for, like, right? Sometimes we pray prayers. We've been praying for revival. We've been praying for a great awakening. Um, and it occurs to me as we look at terms like woke and as we look at uh, what is happening in terms of people having a better understanding of American history, some portions of which we never learned very well, um, there is an awakening of sorts taking place. And I think the challenge for Christians is to propel the gospel in the midst of that. So how will you and I propel the gospel in the midst of the great awakening happening in America right now? All right, we got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. And my first guest is one you absolutely will not want to miss. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.